Our Father, we confess that we are unworthy of your mercy and grace. We are deserving of wrath. And yet, through faith, uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, you make us righteous in your sight and call us children of God. We thank you for that good news that we've been hearing in the book of Romans and that we just sung about. And all of this is for your praise and your glory. We pray that you would use your word now, this morning, help us to hear it clearly, uh, help us to understand it accurately, and may it uh, bring us more and more into the likeness of Christ. May it uh, cause us to bring you glory in our lives more and more, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we began our mini-series through chapters 9 to 11 of Romans, and if you, um, if you missed that, uh, I don't have time to cover all, retrace re, re, all those steps this week, but it is on our website if you're interested in what has gone before. Um, these chapters, Romans 9 to 11, contain some weighty truths about God and His salvation, in the first 13 verses, we learn that not everyone who is a descendant of Israel belongs to Israel. In other words, not every physical descendant, every Israelite, uh, is part of God's saved people in Christ. And one of the examples the Apostle Paul gave in those verses is the example of Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau were two twins in their mother's womb, and God chose one of the twins, Jacob, and not the other one, Esau. And the point Paul draws from these twins uh, is there in verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, God chose Jacob and not Esau. Paul uses this case of God's choosing Jacob and not Esau as an example of how God's purpose of election works. God's choosing of people is not based on our works. It's not based on our merits. It's because of his mysterious will, because of him who calls. It's based on his divine decree, his purpose of election. That was last week. And if we understand what Paul is saying, the truth of God's election raises a question. Is that fair? Is that just? Is it just that God would choose some and not others? And that's a, exactly the question we ought to have. That's exactly the question that Paul anticipates in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. 
Is it wrong for God to choose some people and not others based solely on his own purpose of election? That is a question uh, that I have wrestled with uh, over the years as I encounter this chapter. This is the question that some of you were articulating in the ABF discussions last week. So what's Paul's answer to the charge that God's purpose of election is unjust? Well, he takes us back to the scriptures in verse 15. uh, For he says to Moses in verse 15, quoting from Exodus 33, 19, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So what does the Lord say to Moses in Exodus? It's my choice, Moses. I will show mercy and compassion according to my choice, to whomever I decide. And Paul draws the conclusion for us very clearly in verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, God's decision about who will be the recipients of his mercy and compassion is not based on our human will. It's not bound by what we choose or what we desire, and it's not bound by what we do, not based on our exertion, uh, as verse 16 says. If you're you're a King James Version person, you'll know that this word exertion is literally running. Running. And for me, running is considerable exertion. Uh, It speaks of our human striving, our sweating. God's choice doesn't depend on our own efforts, our own striving, our own exertion. Instead, God's choice is based on God, who has mercy. It's completely up to God who will receive his compassion and mercy. God chooses whomever he wills based on his secret and mysterious choice of election. And just to be sure that we see it clearly, Paul goes back to the book of Exodus again to another scriptural example, the example of Pharaoh. Paul's quoting again from Exodus, this time Exodus 9.16. Look again with me at verse 17 in our passage. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Perhaps you know the story. The Lord is bringing mighty plagues upon Egypt. As he's delivering his people Israel out of captivity in Egypt, he's bringing mighty plagues, successive disasters. And each time Moses speaks to Pharaoh, and it is over and over again in the Exodus account that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Sometimes it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Other times it just says, very neutrally, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And other times it says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
I am going to read for you in rapid succession all of those instances in the book of Exodus so you get the idea. Exodus 7.3 But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. 7.13 Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. 7.22 So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. 8.15, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. 8.19, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. 8.32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. 9.7, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. 9.12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. 9.34, Pharaoh sinned yet again and hardened his heart. 9.35, so the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And then the last three, 10.10, 10.27, 11.10, are all the same. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart three times. So very clearly, a successive theme, almost uh, uh, the literary conclusion to each of these episodes in the book of Exodus is that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart even as Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The Lord caused Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. And uh, just in terms of bookends, the first instance and the last three are the Lord being the agent. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? Why why would the Lord harden Pharaoh's heart and calcify, intensify Pharaoh's rebellion against the Lord? Verse 17 says, so that the Lord might show his power through Pharaoh, and so the Lord's name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart against him and against his word in order to show his power and to accomplish his glory in all the earth. So what does Paul mean to demonstrate by bringing up the example of Pharaoh? That God is sovereign in the affairs of men. That God is sovereign in the hearts of men. So that he might accomplish his sovereign purpose to display his power, his character, his name, and his wonders in all the earth. And verse 18 draws out the conclusion for us. So then... He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Not only does God sovereignly have mercy on whomever he wants, he also hardens whomever he wants in order to accomplish his greater purposes. Wow. 
That is not our natural way of thinking. But it seems to me that if we're going to take this chapter seriously, there's no getting around it. God is absolutely sovereign in the hearts of men. He has mercy on whomever he wills, softening them unto repentance and faith, and he hardens whomever he wills, hardening them so that they remain in their rebellion and unbelief and unrepentance. That is not at all our natural way of thinking. And if we're hearing Paul right, and I think, I think we are, it raises the next big question, which Paul raises for us in verse 19. But you will say to me then, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? Now notice, there's no dispute about the words of the question, who can resist his will? The question is, since no one can resist God's will, why does he still find fault? How can he hold us personally, humanly responsible if he is sovereign over the affairs and the hearts of men? If God decides whose hearts he will soften and whose hearts he will harden, if God decides who will come to him and who will not, then how can God hold men responsible for their choice? And Paul gives the answer in verse 20. And it is not an answer that solves the mystery at a philosophical level. We do not get all the answers. We do not get to understand all of the mysteries. What we get is put in our place. Look at verse 20. But who are you? O oh man, to answer back to God. Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? O man highlights that we are mere mortals, mere men, and he is Almighty God. He is holy, 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 as we sung this morning. He is the only wise God, perfect in power, love, and purity. He is the only one who knows all, who understands all. God alone is perfectly just and righteous and true, even if we can't understand his ways. And this metaphor Paul gives of the potter and the clay, God is the potter. He's in charge of his creation. He makes of his creation exactly what he desires for it to be. And what are we? Clay, mere clay, mere creation. We are subject to the will of the potter who made us, who makes us. 
And a potter has authority. That's the word there, authority. The potter has authority to make different kinds of vessels out of the same clay. With some of the clay, he can make a vessel for honorable use, a royal chalice at the king's table. With some of the clay, he can make a vessel for dishonorable use, such as a chamber pot, the ancient equivalent of a toilet or a bedpan. The potter has the authority to make out of that clay whatever he desires. And Paul applies that metaphor to people in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Two different kinds of vessels are prepared by the potter, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God is the potter. He has the authority to do whatever he pleases with the people he has created. And God has prepared, it seems to me from this text, God has prepared some people to serve his sovereign purpose as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, those he hardens, not unlike Pharaoh, And God endures these vessels of wrath, which with much patience, he delays his wrath for his sovereign saving purpose in verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. So by his authority as the creator, as the potter, God has prepared some people for the purpose of his wrath and he has prepared others for the purpose of his mercy. Now I know that is difficult to hear. I know that some of you will just flat out disagree with that. I just want you to know I am trying my best not to impose my view on the text but to say what I think the text is saying. Because we trust that this is God's word and it is for our good. Who are these vessels of mercy? Verse 24 tells us who they are. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So these vessels of mercy are God's saved people, God's people in Christ called from among the Jews and from among the Gentiles. Perhaps we might like to agree with the Apostle Peter at this point who says of Paul that he writes in his letter some things that are hard to understand. 
And after wrestling with Romans 9 over these last few weeks, I completely agree. These are difficult truths to embrace. And yet, that is another sign of our finite, creaturely limitations. Our difficulty in fully comprehending these things is yet another evidence that God is far and away greater and wiser than anything we can comprehend or understand. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And yet, though we don't fully understand here what Paul is teaching us, God is not unjust. He is God, and he has the right, the authority, to save some people and to not save others, completely according to his own sovereign will, his plan of election. He is God, and he has mercy on whomever he wills. Now, uh, perhaps you're familiar that there is an alternative explanation of Romans 9 that has often been raised. Uh, It's the claim that Paul is not talking about individual salvation in Romans 9. But rather, he's only talking about God's plan for the nations through whom he fulfills his promise, ultimately, of bringing Christ to the whole world. Uh, But I think, my opinion, is that it's clear and unavoidable that the implication of this passage speaks about the eternal welfare of individuals. First of all, the reason why I say that is that, first of all, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction seems unavoidable. It seems unavoidably speaking about individual, personal, final wrath. But what settles that debate for me is Paul's description of the vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. Who are these vessels of mercy, according to Paul? Verse 24 says they are even us whom he has called from among the Jews and from among the Gentiles. Clearly, these vessels of mercy are God's people in Christ, individuals whom God has called together into God's people through faith in Christ. And this word called that Paul uses in verse 24 is, as we've seen in past weeks, is speaking of God's internal calling unto salvation. Not his external general call that goes to everyone, but his, his internal calling, his effectual calling, the theologians sometimes call it, unto salvation. This word calling has been a golden thread through this whole passage. We saw it in Romans 8.28, where it clearly talks about individual salvation. Paul says in Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Again, Romans 8.30, Those he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So this calling language in this context is clearly speaking about individual 
eternal salvation. So here's the truth of the passage. And then we're going to talk about the the false ideas that people draw from it. The truth is that God is the potter. We are the clay. He has the right to save whomever he chooses and to pour out his wrath on whomever he chooses. He has mercy on whom he will have mercy. He has compassion on whom he will have compassion. And it is not based on anything that we do or deserve. It is based solely on God's free choice. But from here, from there, based on what we feel are logical necessities, we often extrapolate false ideas that the Bible soundly condemns. So let me take on some of these false ideas so that we can avoid going off the rails into foolish conclusions. False idea number one. If God has chosen our eternal destiny, then it doesn't matter what we do. I'm sure you've heard that. Some people wrongly conclude that if God has a plan, then it doesn't matter what we do. But that's not at all what the Bible says. Um, some, uh, in some context that I can't quite remember now, um, the, the Bible is, or the Christianity is described as bumper bowling. You know bumper bowling? Uh, you, you roll the ball down and the bumpers, if you're a little kid, if you're, you know, not skilled in bowling at any age, the, the bumpers keep the ball from going off into the gutter. Well, the Bible is the bumpers for us. And yeah, one passage might send us in this direction, but the Bible keeps us from going off into the gutter with other passages. And the Bible does not at all say that it doesn't matter what we do. It does say that our salvation, God's choice of us, is not based on what we do. Definitely it says that. But according to what we do, uh, according to what the Bible says, what we do is vitally important. And it is through what we actually do that God's saving mercy is manifested in our lives. It's vitally important that we respond to God's call and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. That's how we are saved, by believing in Jesus Christ for salvation, by being made righteous in Christ by faith, by believing in him. That's how we're saved. That is the fruit of God's saving mercy at work in our lives. Paul writes in just a few verses in chapter 10 of the vital necessity to respond to Jesus in faith in order to be saved. He writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what we do, how we respond, is vitally important. In fact, it's essential And our personal choice of Christ proves God's personal choice of us. 
False idea number two, similar to false idea number one, if God has chosen who will be saved, then we don't need to share the gospel. This is a subcategory of the same fatalism as the first false idea. Some people think that if God has already decided who will be saved, then there's no reason to bother sharing the gospel with people. Well, the Bible clearly says that God has decided who will be saved, but did he ever tell us? Are there people walking around with a, a, a red E on their forehead, elect? No. The clear teaching of Scripture is that God flushes out his elect through the preaching of the gospel. Jesus, who taught about God's election, is the same one who called us to go and make disciples of all nations. Paul, who taught about God's election, spent the rest of his life after his conversion preaching the gospel to everyone everywhere so that people might be saved even under the repeated threat of execution. Evangelism and election belong together. Sharing the good news is vital to God's saving work, and he has designed it that way. The preaching of the gospel is the method that God has chosen to bring people from death to life. Peter calls it the imperishable seed that brings about the new birth. It's the word of God that brings about the new birth as we preach it. God's vessels of mercy whom he has prepared beforehand will be revealed by their embrace of the good news of Jesus Christ. False idea number three. This concept of God's election is just not fair. Now, Paul has already answered, it is fair. God is God, and he does whatever he wants out of his creation, out of the clay. He's the potter, we are the clay. So Paul's already answered that question, but maybe not in the way that we would like, maybe not on a philosophical level. And here's the answer that I have come to on this. And I've wrestled with this over the years. This is, this is the answer I've come to. It's only unfair that God would save some people and not others if we start with the assumption that everyone deserves to be saved. But in fact, the Bible is very clear that no one deserves to be saved. Everyone deserves God's wrath because of our sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. This is where we've been in Romans already. So when God hardens some, he's not making them rebellious against their will. He's simply leaving them in the state of rebellion that they have chosen. And he's simply leaving them to the wrath of God that they have earned by their works that they deserve. No one will be punished by God unjustly, undeservedly. 
If we, so if we want to talk about what's fair, it would only be fair if absolutely everyone were condemned. Anyone God consigns to face his wrath will be fully deserving of it. The real wonder is not that God would choose to condemn some. The real wonder is that God would receive, uh, should choose to save anyone at all. Why would any of us receive God's mercy that is completely undeserved? False idea number four. And this one, I'm just going to have to tell you it's false. I'm not going to be able to explain to you why it's false because I'm just clay myself. But false idea number four is that God's sovereign election conflicts with the love of God for the whole world. God does have a plan of love for the whole world. This is another scriptural theme that keeps us in the lane. The same Bible that tells us about God's election also tells us about his love for all the world. Actually, consider this. The same apostle who says, so God has mercy on whom he wills and hardens whom he wills, also writes in 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. How do we fit God's universal desire for salvation together with God's secret will of election. How do we fit those together? I don't know. I don't understand in my own logic how these two things fit neatly together. But I know the Bible says one just as well as it says the other and it's like two handles. I'm going to hold on to both I don't know what's connecting them. I don't know how they connect. But we need to hold both realities in humble tension. God's love, his saving plan for the world is clear in Scripture. And his electing love, his sovereignty over who will be saved is also clear in Scripture. So we need to do our best to understand it. I will do my best to understand it. I want you to do your best to understand it. But whatever you do, please, please, please don't throw out either of these scriptural truths. There's a temptation for some to uh, cause the truth of God's love for the whole world to negate what the Bible says about his sovereign election. And there's a, a tendency for others, more sadistic types, to, to say that his sovereign election negates his love for the whole world. And both of those are a mistake. So whatever we do, let's hold on to everything that the Bible says about God. Uh, this past summer, when I was on sabbatical, I got to take my kids to the Lego store, or I guess they got the pleasure was theirs. They got to take me to the Lego store. And... I spent my time at this little kiosk where you can make your own Lego man. And they have all these different pants and different shirts and different heads and different hands and different accessories. 
Um, and I think sometimes that's what we want to do with God. We want to come to the kiosk, and we want to fashion the God that we would like, that makes sense to us, that's under our control, that has no mysteries about him at all. Now I've got one. I'm going to take out this sovereign election part, and I'm, you know, or I'm going to, you know, whatever it is, whatever it is that you have trouble with. But Tim Keller has said uh, very poignantly something that I'm approximately attempting to quote, that is, um, if your God never offends you, if there's nothing about your God that you find difficult or offensive, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. In other words, if I'm the potter and God is the clay and I get to make God the way I want him to be, the way I think he should be, well, it's all backwards. And that is not a God who exists or who can save. We have to go with the God who exists and who has revealed himself in Scripture. And if you are fumbling around in the dark and saying, I don't understand it, I don't know if I can accept this, know this. The same God who has mercy on whomever he wills and who hardens whomever he wills sends his, his beacon of truth, his greatest revelation of his character is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his Son into the world to die for sinners like us so that we might be saved through him. So hang, anchor yourself on that truth. Our God is good and he is mighty to save and he saves whomever he wills. I'm going to finish with a quote from John Stott's commentary on these verses. Some of you are thinking, I, I should have been finished long ago, but uh, we're almost there. Um, I'm going to depend on Stott's uh, wisdom here. He writes, Many mysteries surround the doctrine of election. And theologians are unwise to systematize it in such a way that no puzzles, enigmas, or loose ends are left. We need to remember two truths. First, election is not just a Pauline or apostolic doctrine. It was also taught by Jesus himself. He said, I know those whom I have chosen. Secondly, Election is an indispensable foundation of Christian worship in time and in eternity. It's the essence of worship to say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. If we were responsible for our own salvation, either in whole or even in part, we would be justified in singing our own praises and blowing our own trumpet in heaven. But such a thing is inconceivable. God's redeemed people will spend eternity wor worshiping him, humbling themselves before him in grateful adoration, ascribing their salvation to him and to the Lamb, and acknowledging that he alone 
is worthy to receive all praise and honor and glory. Why? Because our salvation is due entirely to his grace, his will, his initiative, his wisdom, and his power. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to embrace all of you. Uh, we want to know you. As Moses said, we want to see your glory. And yet, there's part of you that we cannot see, that we cannot understand. Indeed, you are the potter, and we are clay. So despite our finite limitations, we pray that you would help us to know you more, to trust you more, to come to you through faith in Jesus Christ, to never let go, uh, as emblems of your grace and mercy on our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.